the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Praise to the God who reigns above. God brought a child to a woman who had been barren for many years. His name was John. We know him as John the Baptist. He was a child sent from God to go before the coming Messiah, the chosen Savior of the world. Then Jesus the Christ was born to Mary, a young woman betrothed to a carpenter in the city of Nazareth. Thirty years would pass between Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, hearing God say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. At the start of Luke chapter 4, we saw Jesus had fasted for forty days and nights, being led of the Spirit into the desert wilderness, seeking God. Satan came to tempt Jesus, but ultimately failed to cause Jesus to sin. Jesus returned to his hometown and taught in the synagogue he usually attended. He declared that the Messiah would come down as prophesied about in Isaiah. Jesus is that Messiah that Isaiah spoke about. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 4, verse 20. Luke has written this gospel to us to show us that we have a reliable faith. He's interviewed people, he's documented things, been very meticulous about putting together the information necessary to give us an account that's reliable of Jesus' life, to show us that our faith has a foundation. And in in going through that, he's come down to the point in Jesus' ministry where Jesus begins to hit some trouble. Jesus has been preaching in the synagogues around Galilee for about 18 months. And with news of this awesome new rabbi spreading everywhere, there's great expectation when Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. Being invited to be the guest speaker at the Sabbath synagogue service, Jesus reads from that chapter in the Isaiah scroll, chapter 61. And it refers to the anointing that God gave the Messiah to rescue the world from sin and its consequences. And when he reads that, expectation skyrockets. Is he, he's going to say he's the Messiah. I mean, maybe he's going to tell us the Messiah is coming soon. I mean, there's just so much anticipation. And so his short teaching, which follows, becomes his most polarizing statement since he began his ministry. And so as we get into it today and his reaction to their reaction, may the Lord teach us the importance and the blessing that comes with being poor in spirit. So pick up in verse 20. And he closed the book. And he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogues were fastened on him. Now, what's interesting about this is Jesus, given the scroll of Isaiah, he finds, he's looking for a specific verse, finds Isaiah 61. And as he finds it, he reads verse 1. And if you noticed last week, only half of verse 2, right? 
He doesn't read all of verse 2. He stops in the middle of the verse. This would have immediately caught people's attention because you didn't do that. You don't do that. You finish the verse. You finish the statement. And especially for the crowd that he's ministering to. This is a group of people that is used to seeing roads lined with crucifixes because of Rome. They're tired of Rome. And so they probably think to themselves, wait a second, Jesus. That's not the end of the verse. That's not the end of the story. That's not all the Messiah is supposed to do. You left out the most important part. What part did Jesus leave out? Let's go back to Isaiah 61. We'll start in verse 1, the part Jesus did read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. We talked about all those things last week, what the Messiah came to do, what he was empowered to do. And as we studied each of those, we saw that Jesus wants to do these things in our lives. But that's where he stops, to proclaim that season of grace, the acceptable year of the Lord. But you notice there's a comma there, not a period. But what does the rest of it say? And the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn. So who's the ones that are mourning that are being comforted? To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, the Israeli people. To give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness they've been experiencing, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build the old waste. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the wasted cities, the desolations of many generations." And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. And the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. And in their glory shall you boast themselves. For your shame you shall have double, like a double portion of goodness. And for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. They knew that Isaiah scroll. They knew Isaiah 61. And they're thinking, you left out all the good stuff. Jesus stopped at the portion that referred to the day of the vengeance of our God. The portion that refers to the kingdom age, where all of the woes of the Jews would be reversed. Where they would reign with him over the world instead of being oppressed by the world. Can't you imagine if you're being oppressed at that point in time, that's where you want out? They're like, what do you mean you're going to stop here? You know, that Jesus sat down, handed them the scroll. The way they taught back in, rabbis sat and the audience stood. That's just how it was. So we do it opposite here in Western culture. But when he sat down and it indicated he was done reading and he was going to teach, he wasn't going to get to that stuff. They, were, they thought that we're not interested in the spiritual salvation stuff. We don't want to care about being freed from our sin or anything else. They wanted physical salvation from Rome And every other oppressor that they'd suffered under for the last 600 years, they wanted vengeance. The day of the vengeance of our God. In this very first reference to him being the Messiah, to Jesus' ministry, Jesus is establishing an important truth by leaving out those verses. He's explaining that the Messiah will have kind of two phases. And as we now understand, two comings. The first one, to save the world from sin and its effects. That's what Jesus came to do here. He came to die on the cross for our sins and to rid us of its consequences and rid of of its power. But then there would be a second phase, a second coming to set up his rule over the world. For someday, 
It won't be a season of grace. We talked about last week how it's been a season of grace for 2,000 years. And are we glad for that? But someday that day will end. Someday it will be a season of judgment. It won't be a season of grace anymore. God is going to pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. The church will be taken out of the world. And God will be pouring out his judgment on mankind for the rebellion against him. And those seven years will culminate in the second coming of Christ to do all the things listed in Isaiah 61, the second half, through verse 7. When you combine what Jesus has been doing in other cities and the passage he selected to teach on, there's a fervor there. But it's kind of mixed right now because he stops. So they're like, what is he saying? What is he going to do? So he has everybody's full attention. It says, in the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue, they're fastened on him. Whether to be mad at him or to hear some good news. Either way, they want to know what he has to say next. So what does he say? Well, Jesus in verse 21 makes the most audacious claim a man could ever make. He says, it says, and he began to say unto them, which indicates that he had more to say. Jesus intended to do a larger teaching on verse 1 and ver- the first part of verse 2. But his opening statement is so radical that nobody's listening afterwards. So what did he say? Well, he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. What does that mean? Well, the word fulfilled there, it's in the perfect tense, which means this day, this scripture stands completed. This day, this scripture finds its full meaning in your ears. It is the clearest way possible that Jesus could say and declare that he's the Messiah. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about this. There are people who may tell you and say, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. They also, the same people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus did on multiple occasions. Jesus very clearly here, and they understood exactly what he's saying, claims to be the Messiah. There is no questioning that or confusing that. This day, this scripture stands completed in your ears. I'm going to do these things. I'm the Messiah. That kind of claim cannot be ignored, especially if you're in Israel. I mean, I could go walk around going, I'm the Messiah, and people just think I'm crazy. But in Israel at this time, You've got to have an opinion about something when somebody, when they say that, make that claim. So it's not a surprise that they interrupt his teaching by a reaction. Verse 22, and they all start talking to each other and all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. So the crowd here, we see their first uh, reaction is, is very positive. The phrase there, to bear witness, means to speak well of or to commend. They all started to go look around and go, wow, this guy's good. Why? Well, it says they wondered at his gracious words. They were amazed in a good way at his kind words. That's what the word gracious there means. He spoke kindly. I've heard some well-spoken preachers. Maybe you've been listening to somebody like I have, and you've been in awe of the kindness of some of their words as they express how God loves you, and you sense God's love when they share a scripture. I mean, I hope you've experienced that. I hope you experience it here. (laughs) Otherwise, you need to find a new pastor. But I've sensed that, and it's been powerful. Can you imagine how awesome it would have been to hear Jesus teach and to hear the kindness of God coming out as he taught? Can you imagine what it was like to see the full heart of God perfectly revealed from God right in front of you? I mean, I can't can't imagine why they would wonder. I can't imagine why they would go, we never heard anybody talk like this. Now, the sad part is, all of these reactions are in the imperfect tense, which means it went on for a while, but then it stopped. It didn't stay that way. As people were asking, could it be true? Could he be the Messiah? 
He sounds like the Messiah. I mean, I can't imagine. I've never heard anybody talk like this before. I've never felt God's love like this before. But as they're wondering that and saying these things, the mood in the room changes because somebody decides they need to bring a little sanity to the situation. It says, and they, and we don't know who they were, so it's more than one person, but some group of people said, is not this Joseph's son? See, a few people decided they needed to bring some rational thought to the conversation and said, um, guys, have we forgotten that we know this guy? He's Joseph, the town fix-it guy's son. You know, before he disappeared into the desert to see his crazy cousin John, wasn't he the guy who fixed your broken wheel on your cart? You know, Bob? Hey, hey, Judy, didn't you help Mary with Jesus and his brothers and his sisters when they were running around the town in diapers? I know this guy sounds like he can preach, but I don't think the Messiah is our old town fix-it guy. Jesus knew exactly what their next words would be. If you're the Messiah, you're going to have to prove it to us with more than pretty talk. You're going to have to show us something, boy. And so he says to them, as they're having this conversation with each other, he says to them, remember, he wanted to give a teaching on Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, but now he's got to confront this reaction. And so he said unto them, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your hometown, your country. A proverb is just a, a common saying, and this was an incredibly common saying in Jesus' day. Not just from the Jews, but all over the world. Homer quotes it, a bunch of other, Virgil quotes it, a ton of very famous historians use this quote. It was also common in, in Israel as well. And what does it mean? Well, it's quite simply this. Before we trust you to be the one who gives us medicine, let's see how your medicine works on yourself. It's a spoke of proof. Prove to us that we should trust you. Prove to us that your claim is true. So what proof could Jesus offer of his claim to be the Messiah? Well, they'd heard things, right? They had heard whispers, rumors. Not only was he a great teacher, we'd heard, we heard about that nobleman's son you healed in Capernaum. How about you do some of that stuff here? How about you give us some of that medicine, Jesus? Jesus knew that. And so he said to him, you're going to out tell me, physician, heal yourself. Give us some proof. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your hometown. Now, Jesus could have done that, right? Right? Jesus could have just said, okay, uh, who's sick? All right, you. Come on up. Everybody watching? Kablam! I mean, he could have done that. But that would have ignored the fact that he purposely stopped midway through Isaiah 61 too. It would have ignored the fact that they didn't want to hear those words. They didn't want to hear a teaching on those things. You know, it's interesting. Jesus came to give them something they didn't want. He came to overthrow sin, not Rome. He came to set them free from sin, not Rome. That's what he wanted to talk about because that's what their greatest need was. But they didn't want that because they thought their greatest need was Rome to get rid of it. You know, it's interesting, Jesus, we often think of all his opponents, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, whatever. Some of those groups were certainly opposed to him. But at this point, 18 months have gone by. Everybody loves Jesus. No opposition. Nobody's got a problem with him. He's got Pharisees hanging out with him all the time. We find them in his retinue as he's traveling around. Pharisees are traveling with him. He eats with them. He hangs out with them. They're in lots of stories where we see Jesus teaching. So they're not opposed to him at this point. What happened? What happened that, that caused them to oppose Jesus? Well, see, the idea that the, everybody had in that day was, 
Our problem isn't us. Our problem is everything around us. It's the government. It's Rome. It's all the peoples who've been oppressing us for all these years. Get rid of that and we're fine. We don't need you to mess with our rules and our traditions, Jesus. That's fine. We're good. Just get rid of Rome and everything will be perfect. The sad part is, I think oftentimes we think the same way in the church. It's the government's fault or a political party's fault or it's my spouse's fault, my kid's fault, my parents' fault, my job's fault, my boss's fault, my employee's fault. If we just, you just fix that, God, I'm not the problem. Everything will be fine. I don't know how many times I've told that to the Lord when like something goes wrong at church over the years. I'm like, oh man, if we could just get this together, everything would be great. Every time I come to the Lord like that, he's like, see, here's the thing, Will. The problem isn't that thing that you think needs to be fixed. The problem is you. And I'm trying to fix you. (laughs) But you're not seeing that, so I'm going to have to exacerbate the problem. Right? I've never come to God and said, this is the problem. If everything be fine, if you just fix this person and have him go, get right on it, Will. Every time the Lord's like, how about we fix you? Never is it any other response. Never. The Lord deals with me. And he's trying to deal with them. They're like, we don't have the problem, Jesus. Why are you giving us a hard time? And sometimes we can be the same way. And so we yell at the world. We scream at the sin that we see. And we scream at all the things we don't like out there. And we don't even notice the hypocrisy. The vomit of flesh coming out of our mouths. The pit of hell coming right out of our hearts. Jesus, how did he deal with this? Because, I mean, he's trying to be direct and they just don't want it. So what he would do is he would do miracles. But notice what it would say. What would he do? And he did it on the Sabbath day. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Here you got this guy. He's been in an infirmity for 38 years, sitting at the pool of Siloam, or pool of Bethesda, sorry. And Jesus heals him. And he's like, doesn't say, hey, be healed. He goes, rise up. That's right, it's the Sabbath day. By the way, take up your mat and go for a walk. Now, Pharisees are seeing this guy who's been sick for 38 years. Surely they know about this guy. And he's whistling, walking around with his mat. Hey, man, what are you doing carrying your bed around? It's the Sabbath day. And he's like, don't mess with me, man. The dude healed me, told me to carry my bed. And they're like, oh, that dude again. What's his problem with our Sabbath rules? What's his problem with us? Why are we the problem? And so they conspire to kill him for it. That's what it says. It says that in John chapter 5. Right after the guy walks around with his mat, it says, and from that day forward, they decided they were going to kill Jesus. Whoa. We'll talk about that kind of reaction later, but Jesus could have done a miracle here, but it wouldn't get to the heart of the issue. And not only that, but why would his kindly preaching of God's word be less of a miracle than healing a nobleman's son? Why would the power they'd already experienced why would that be less of a miracle than the healing of a nobleman's son? Well, well teaching the Bible and you know, healing somebody, I mean, there's no comparison. Funny you should say that because in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 32 and 33, so you can look it up in your own time. It, God himself makes a claim, Moses makes a claim, 
Has there ever been anything more amazing, more miraculous than this? That God would speak to his people and they should live? Why don't you think about that for a moment? God's never failed you. He's always been loving towards you. He's always been good towards you. And how many times do we come to his word that he's already given to us and we either see a warning that we haven't been heeding and we have to ask him to forgive us. We see behavior that we're not supposed to be doing and we ask him to forgive us. We try to repent and get it on the right track. We see a promise that he's given to us that we haven't been standing on. You know, we see a character attribute that we just begin to weep and we just say, God, I, I thank you for the fact that you're love or you're holy, or you're, you're faithful, or you're good, right? Like, why doesn't, like, what should happen is we open the scripture and it's like, we read, thou shalt not lie. And I'm like, man, I already did that like eight times today. God, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And like fire should shoot out of the pages, just, ah, you know, and like, you know better that God would speak in the same kindness, the same power, speaks that forgiveness to us, that mercy to us, that grace to us, the correction to us that we need, you know, that he, he persists with us even though we're stubborn and we have rebellious hearts, right? That's the greatest miracle. That I get to come here today and you speak to my heart as we sing, as I have conversations with you people, and as the word goes forth, I don't deserve that. And yet I still sense his power. <laughs> it's the greatest miracle. There's no greater miracle than God speaking his word to us. So if, if they weren't going to receive that, they're not going to receive like the other miracle. that he, he would Like a physical miracle that, that they would see. And if they were going to let the fact that he grew up in their town get in the way of that miracle, of the teaching of God's word, then they weren't ready to receive the salvation he offered. And so Jesus, he gives them a moment to respond because the phrase, and he said there, shows he stopped teaching after he said, verily you'll say unto me, physician, heal yourself. And that implies he waits a moment to see their response. And my guess is that they were like, uh, duh, that's exactly what we're thinking. So Jesus has to deal with that attitude instead of give the teaching he wanted to give. And so he says, verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now, we'll get to the radical statement that that is in a second. But Jesus, he's trying to shake up their salvation ideology. What he says here, truly I say unto you, no prophet, nobody who speaks for God is accepted, welcomed, is acceptable, finds favor. It's the same word in verse 19 to preach uh, the acceptable year of the Lord, the season of grace. In other words, I say unto you that nobody speaking for God finds welcome or finds grace in his own homeland. Now, that's akin to blasphemy. You say, why? It was a common saying in Israel in that day, that, quote, to live in the promised land is equal to the observance of all the commandments. So the rabbis taught. The Talmud taught, he that has his permanent abode in the land is sure of the life to come. All you gotta do is live there. The rabbis taught, and I quote, he that dwells in the land is without sin. Do you understand the mindset he's dealing with here? It really doesn't matter if he starts talking to them about their obedience. They're of the belief what are you talking about? We're God's people in God's land. We're God's favored. It's not us that needs to change. We're already where we're supposed to be. To say a Jew in the land didn't want to listen to God was akin to blasphemy. How dare you? The greatest miracle we will ever witness is that we can know and talk to God. 
we can hear his voice through scripture and be confident that he not only sees us and hears us in our lowly estate, but that he actually cares about us. He cared enough to come down in human flesh and be acquainted with our weaknesses. He longs to bless us with his presence when we draw close to him on his terms. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.